Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello again, fellow time travelers. It's always a treat to have you with me. Uh, for the journey through space and time, I wouldn't want to do it on my own, and I can't think of anyone better to do it with than all of you. Before we get started on today's episode, I always say thanks to those who have and continue to support the podcast series by signing up to my Patreon site. It's that financial support via Patreon that makes possible everything else that Paul and I do. So, if you're already a member, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you're not a member yet and you'd like to become a member then go to patreon.com look for me by name join up sign up and you become part of the family basically like-minded people fascinated by history curious about current events and what there is to learn about dealing with those events by looking back into the past questions and answers competitions so come along come and join us That'll do for the advert. Now it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. The Golden Horde, led by Janny Begg, is on the prowl, ever battling to expand an already vast empire. Whilst laying siege to the rich trading port of Kaffa, a deadly plague breaks out amongst those soldiers black marks and painful lumps appearing on their faces and bodies. And in one of the earliest applications of biological warfare in the world, siege catapults are loaded with the soldiers' bloated, rotting corpses and fired over the walls into the besieged port. As the residents flee the city aboard ships, this deadly disease spreads with them. A spider's web of death spun across Europe. The Black Death is here. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode, it was the early 1300s and we saw Europe begin the intellectual push that would drive the continent forward as Dante put the final full stop on one of the great masterpieces of medieval literature. Where are we this week? Hello Paul. Well yes, after last week's look at the refined and gentle pursuits of learning and literature, this week's episode couldn't be more of a a rude shock to the system. Sprimful of violence, death and destruction, as bloated, rotting human corpses are fired at enemies. And if that wasn't gruesome enough, it's just the start. It's 1346 when a deadly disease that will wreak havoc and devastation right across Europe is unleashed. We are in the Crimea. That's a place that's become familiar again to a lot of people on account of what's happening between Russia and the rest of the world at the moment. 
people used to think about Crimea in relation to the Crimean War, but I think the generations that have any concept of what the Crimean War was about are, you know, <laughs> diminishing. And Crimea has, has come to have different resonances now. But that, that's where in the world we are. Uh, and we're in more or less the middle of the 14th century. So the year in question, for the sake of it, is 1346. Uh, but it's events that spill a little bit before that and, and have consequences on into the second half of the 14th century. It's about the Black Death, this particular love letter to the world, and that's that's something that resonates for everyone forever. Surely, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, has, has the resonance of the bubonic plague and the Black Death, has that, has that diminished and I haven't noticed, or do you think people still fear the mention of the words? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean... It's so powerful, isn't it? It is. Yeah, obviously, you know, we've been through... Uh, we've been through something for the last two or three years that, that has been described as a pandemic. And really, the, the mother and father of all pandemics was the outbreak of the Black Death or the bubonic plague, whatever you want to call it, right in the middle of the 14th century. That was, that was the one. And Black Death, because of when it happened... You know, because it had its its main flowering when it did, there is a continuing, I suppose, almost a mystery about exactly what it was. Because you can never be quite sure if that disease that harvested so many millions at that time and that still persists today in the world, but it, it's hard to know if it's exactly the same disease. I think the World Health Organization, I think, estimates that something between a thousand and three thousand people die of the of the Black Death. Every year, it's still out there. But I, I would, I would guess, you know, diseases evolve. Uh, and is it, is it the same? Are people dying today of the same thing that people were dying of in the 14th century? I think it's, it's a difficult one to call. But the terror, if you imagine, if you were somewhere in, in you don't expect to encounter the Black Death here, do you? You're, you're not expecting to find somebody with Black Death in in London or or in Edinburgh. But it, it's out there. It's out there in the world. And, and imagine if you were somewhere in the world and you heard that somebody in the room next door had a black death. It would still turn people's tripes to ice water, I would say. There's no way really to describe, I think, the history of Europe without contemplating the black death outbreak in the 14th century because it changed Europe forever. The Europe of today is in part a consequence of, of that great harrowing of people that, that happened then. <laughs> To get down to the specifics, uh, we're in a port city called Kafar, uh, which was run by Christian Genoese people. Run. It was inhabited by. It was a. It was a, a Genoese Christian Genoese port in the Crimea, and it was very wealthy. Trade in, trade out. It was one of those petri dishes of cultures. There was money to be made by all. So people within the city and, and obviously the people in the, in the surrounding territory you know, were, were coming in and using it as their, as their access to the wider world. So there was plenty of money to be made. The problem was, however, that from about 1313, the Khanate... Well, to go back a bit further, when Genghis Khan died, the Khanate, as it was, the empire was split between his sons. It was never, again, the same thing that it had been under the, the centralising control of uh, Genghis Khan. Uh, but the Khanates that succeeded, that, that followed behind him, or followed after him, to some extent they went their own way. What is um, a Khanate? 
the, it's the it's that which is ruled by the Khan. You know, the the Khan is the ultimate uh, chief, the top dog, and that territory that he uh, places the shadow of his hand upon is the is the Khanate that, that's held together in in that way. And the Khanate that relates to the circumstances of the port of Kaffa had become Muslim in, I think, 1313. Okay, so up, up until that time, you know, the, the Mongol Khans had their own religion. You know, they worshipped a, a sky god and there was a whole pantheon and a whole way of thinking and understanding the cosmos. But gradually, gradually, Islam began to play a part. And by the time that we're talking about, the port of Kaffa was besieged by a, a Muslim horde called the Golden Horde, actually, and it was commanded by a Khan called Jani Beg, who was a very dangerous individual, uh, very ambitious. He had done away with members of his own family in order to take control. And by about 1343, he was laying siege to the Christian port of Kaffa, which was behind walls, a fortified town. Obviously difficult to get at for that reason. Because even though Jani Beg's huge army was at the walls, the the port could still be uh, supplied by sea. So there were still ships coming in and out. So it's not as though it was a, a landlocked place that you could cut off, that the, that the besieging force could cut it off. So inside the walls, it's a big defended, big walled city. And within the walls, you've got Christian Genoese. You can imagine it's Christians on one side, Muslims on the other, ill feeling. Despite the fact there was money to be made for all, you know, everyone was making money anyway, but there was religious factionalism, as you would expect. And so it was a hard place to besiege because it's a port. It's one thing if you've got a landlocked city, you can surround it and cut them off, cut the inhabitants off from food and water and whatever. Much harder when it's a port because no matter what you do on the land, throwing everything you can at the walls, they're still able to supply themselves from the sea ships coming and going and a siege is hard to do anyway anywhere the onus is always on the besieging force because the people inside the walls they've got nowhere to go they're they're at home they've got no option but to fight to the last man anyway the people outside as time goes on you know boredom how do you maintain discipline how do you keep these guys persuaded that that they're ever going to get inside the walls people drift away so a commander of a a siege is like holding water in his cupped hands it's always just evaporating and and getting through his fingers no matter what he does and this was the situation at Kaffa the siege was coming and going they'd already kind of withdrawn from Kaffa and come back so by the autumn of 1346 there they are, this uh, this kind of deadlock, when disease breaks out amongst the Muslim Mongol army, and it's something terrible. The people who take sick and they are they are dropping like flies. They get terrible, painful lumps that appear in the groin, in their armpits, on the neck. It's the lymphatic system, okay, that's getting that's getting that's getting hit. So anywhere there are nodes of the lymphatic system, these lumps, and we're talking lumps the size of like apples that that, that grow, very very painful. They also get um, black marks, hence black death. Their their skin blackens like terrible bruises on the face, on the body. There's a terrible fever, terrible raised temperature, vomiting, 
these lumps are called buboes, B-U-B-O-E, hence bubonic plague. Uh, and eventually they start to weep, burst, full of blood and pus. It's a horror show. Anyone with it tends to be dead within, well, a three days, let's say, if not hours. There's, there's all sorts of stories about people being okay in the morning and then showing the first symptoms sometime after breakfast and being dead before it's bedtime. A terrible, terrible disease. The Mongols, the, the, the Muslim horde, they had seen it before. In their part of the world, into Eastern Asia, the plague, that disease, was known. In fact, archaeologists have excavated skeletons from you know, the 3rd millennium BC. So sometime between sort of 3000 BC onwards, at least, there are skeletons that archaeologists excavate and then test coming out of that part of Asia and Eastern Europe that have the Yersinia pestis uh, bacteria. Okay, it's, it's named for a guy called Andre Yersin, I think. The Yersinia pestis bacteria is, is what makes you sick. That, when that gets into your body, that's what makes you ill with the Black Death, with the bubonic plague. So it, it's ancient. We know that it swept Europe thousands of years ago. It probably, it did, in fact, get into Britain sometime in the 3rd millennium BC. And we can only imagine what kind of devastation it would have wrought then to that Neolithic population of Britain, the first farmers. And it was brought in by outsiders. You know, so people, one of these these great folk movements that come from east to west, well, one of those, somewhere between two and 3,000 BC, people came, probably with animals, livestock, cattle, and so on, coming across, and then they get to, they get to Britain, and they, they bring with them the Yersinia pestis bacterium in one form or another. And we can only imagine how many people in, in Britain, let's say, would have died at that time. Because, like when the Europeans turn up in, in the Americas, in the 15th century, they've got no protection, they've got no immunity to the disease. So there was probably a wholesale replacement of one uh, population by another. You know, that, that incoming population that, that had at least some kind of vestigial resistance or immunity or, or familiarity at least with the disease, you know, probably in large part replaced whatever had been the, you know, the resident population. So it's an ancient, ancient disease. It, it may have been with us for as long as, well, you know, as long as we've been sharing our lives with animals. Because... It's transmitted by fleas that live on black rats. And black rats, unlike their brown cousins, quite like living in proximity to people. Uh, Brown rats keep their distance. Black rats, not a problem. So they'll mix with human populations. And they carry fleas, as all rats do. And the fleas that travel on the backs of black rats carry the Yersinia pestis bacteria in their blood. So once the rats get in amongst the people, the fleas jump onto the people, the fleas bite the people, communicate the bacteria into their blood, and there you go. You've got hours or a couple of days to live at that point. So in any event, back at the walls of Kaffa, 1346, in the autumn, the besieging army starts to go down, and the leaders of, the, of that army decide that they're going to share the disease with the people beyond the walls. And legend has it that they used a catapult or catapults to fire plague-ridden corpses over the walls. Imagine, it's probably, you might say it's the first instance of biological warfare in history, but these people are knowingly spreading these infected corpses, throwing them over the walls. 
and the people inside, I mean, imagine the horror of it. You know, these, these bodies will be you know, bursting on impact and on closer inspection you'll be able to tell there's something that they died of something pretty dreadful. And they do what they can, they're gathering up the bodies, they're dumping them in the sea, you know, they're just clearing them away, but the damage is done. The siege fails, the siege is lifted early the following year, you know, into 1347, not least because everybody's dropping down dead of the Black Death. But by that time, the die is cast. Ships have already been coming and going from Kaffa to Constantinople and onwards towards the Mediterranean and from there into Europe. And the rats have been... Let's, let's deal with this thing about the catapult. It has subsequently been challenged whether or not that ever happened. You know, that, that's certainly part of the legend of the outbreak of, of the plague in Kaffa at that time, but it may or may not have happened. What certainly would have been happening at the same time is that the same rats that were in that, that Muslim-Mongol army would have found their own way into Kaffa. They'd have got through the walls, under the walls, whatever. They would have got in. So one way or another, you don't, you don't need the catapult story to get the plague into Kaffa. And from Kaffa, it spread and it arrives, it arrives in Europe. So some of the people from Kaffa are managing to flee the besieged city. Yeah, I mean, but life goes on. You know, for the for the you know one the, okay, the bodies are let's say the bodies are raining down, or the rats are getting in. In any event, people are are starting to be infected with Black Death inside the city walls, and and life goes on for the living. People are getting aboard ship. Uh, livestock is getting loaded. Goods are getting loaded aboard ships, and those ships are leaving. And so that that's how that's how pandemics spread. We know that you know it's it's the movement of people. So w- with the people in the ships were the rats. The rats were travelling with them because black rats like ships as well. So they're they're perfectly at home aboard ship, and they carry the fleas, and the fleas are getting onto the people. And this Yersinia pestis, the Black Death, that that disease is incredibly infectious, and it arrives in a Europe that's you know. Uh, you know that although there'll be this ancient history of the Black Death, it hasn't arrived amongst the people there for centuries or millennia, and now it's now it's here. Now it arrives big time. And well, between 1346, let's say, or 1347 and 1355, so a- across those relatively few years, tens of millions of people in Europe died. They keep dying all over the world with it, but they, they dying by the tens of millions, maybe 20 million, maybe 30 million. It's very hard to tell. It comes to Britain, and it's estimated that 40% of the British population died at that time. Between about 1347 and 1355, about 40%, maybe, maybe half the population died. Some estimates across Europe as a whole suggest as many as 60%, getting on for two-thirds of the population may have died in that just just in that handful of years. Every other person, at least, is dead. Men, women, children, it respects nothing and no one. And it absolutely turns Europe upside down. As you can as you can imagine. I mean look at look at what happened here with our recent C word uh, so called pandemic. Now that had a survival rate of 99%. You know, more than 99% of people survived that. And look at what it's done to us economically. Look at the consequences. And it, the society, fabric of society has been rent asunder by, by that pandemic. So imagine what happened in medieval Europe. 
when every other person, at least, was dropping down dead. And and one of the things, it has been speculated that, that so many people died that the value of the average working person went up many fold. You know, the great estates and the power that the landowners had had, you know, where they could dictate wages and they could dictate living conditions because there were plenty of people to plough the fields and harvest the crops and, and do everything else. Suddenly, people, working people, are at a premium. And for at least a short time, average working people were able to command better wages, better living conditions. They could up sticks. They didn't have to stay where they were. You know, where people tended to just be in a location, they worked for the, for the man, they lived and died. Now they could go up, pick up and move because, you know, a, a community over there maybe had nobody living in it. And so people had flexibility and mobility and they had power. They had a little bit of power. As you can imagine, I mean, eventually the, the landowning class took control again, as they invariably do. But, but nonetheless, it shifted. It, it caused a shifting of the balance of power all across Europe. Some audacious scholars have even suggested that the Renaissance was triggered by all the dying. Because it just changed everything. Every other person was gone. And that caused intense reflection. You know, those left alive were left to wonder, what just happened? It happened so quickly. That, that devastation that was wrought everywhere. And so people start asking big questions. What's it all about? Why are we here? There was a, 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 in, in Christian Europe, there was a general uh, acceptance that it was some kind of wrath of God. There was a there was an acceptance that it must be punishment for sin. That that God was was unleashing His wrath, rather than a biblical flood this time. You know, it was it was plague that that came. But people were left thinking we must have done something to deserve this, and maybe we have to maybe we have to take a good long hard look at ourselves and at our society. The Europe that happens from the middle of the 14th century onwards is a product of that great harvesting of people caused by that outbreak, that catastrophic outbreak of plague from 1346 to 1355. All change, please. New taxes, war and ruthless employers are sucking the life out of the working poor. England is a tinderbox of hurt and rage. Championing freedom and equality, thousands of rebels march on London, Watt Tyler at their head. Violence flares, buildings are burned, records are destroyed and officials are murdered. The king and the rebels hold peace talks, but fighting erupts and the royal forces cut down and kill Watt Tyler. And with his death, the dreams of a socialist utopia are killed. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be lovely to see you there. Check out the Instagram account. It's called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. 
Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.